All right. I'd like you to take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 7, if you'd join me there. <coughs> Excuse me. I've got some. Thank you, Warren. I appreciate it. Folks, I want to encourage you, um, not struggling for material, not trying to just repeat things for the sake of repeat, repeating things, but people do not know where they're going to go when they die. And I don't think that that's going to change anytime soon. The more that I have studied end times, because we're living in very, and I say this in a negative way, amazing times. When you see what is going on around us, you, we just know that the rapture is very soon. Now, the Apostle Paul believed the same, and he is with the Lord right now. So there's no telling how, amount of time, how, much, how much time there is left, but uh, there's less than there was just a few minutes ago. And we are getting much, much closer to the end. And I say all these things because it is an, it, it is an endless discussion about what does it mean to believe. It really is an endless discussion. And, you know, in my studies and how I've looked and read through the Scriptures, it's a simple thing to understand. But many people, I think the worst decision that they've made is they've decided to go get educated on the deeper things of God. When Dr. Gilbert gets up here and he tells you about Florida Bible College and all of that, I took all four years of a degree offered here. Not once, not once, did we study the church fathers with the same respect that we study the Word of God? Not once. Sure, we'd see what they say. We may see what they believed. But we did not hold their writings to the same standard of Scripture itself. That's not happening in many Bible colleges around this country. A lot of people are being drawn to complex definitions, words that have meaning, that must be changed so that it meets the Wisdom of man. We're warned about this in the scripture, that God will make the wisdom of man foolish. And he says, actually, he describes salvation from man's point of view, and he says, through the foolishness of preaching, man would be saved. People look at people like your pastor and our teachers in the college, and even yourselves as you pass out tracts and stuff, and they say, you're the fools, you're the dum-dums, you're the sky is falling people. The more I study the end times, when the rapture happens, I think there's going to be massive deception. I don't know if there will be many, many people that trust Christ immediately after the rapture. We're already seeing stuff set up right now to try and explain away things that are outside of our knowledge and control. I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all, but there are things that are now happening in our Congress floor that 20 years ago people would say, you're insane. And now here they are saying, oh, aliens are real. All this stuff, you know? Folks, you got to look at this for what it is. First of all, if the government comes and says anything involving the phrase, trust me, you, you don't do that. That's an exercise in habit, you know? But we have to be careful that we don't allow the world to define what the Bible says. We need to let the Bible speak for itself. And I think that's why people get tired of churches like this. I think people get tired of Bible-based churches because they want more. They want more that tickles their 
their desire for knowledge and words and definitions and doctrines and phrases. When the Bible is repetitive for a reason, because we have a problem obeying, folks. You've had that problem for a long time. Our daughter did not have to be taught how to do an alligator roll at diaper change, but boy, she's good at it. She's really good at it. I'll go and pick up a happy Remy girl, you know, oh, hey, baby, coming out of the crib after she slept all night. Praise God. Praise God. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And Kyla knows. <laughs> I'm like, how did we get so blessed? She's like, I prayed for it, you know. <laughs> so I'll go and pick her up, right? And she's, oh, goo goo, gaga, everything is good. You place her on that changing table, World War III. She's all upset about it. And she has a will, she has a desire, and I need her to lay still. And she wants to try and roll out of it, and she's getting much too big for the little changing table that we have. So that becomes a danger if she's not careful. But ever since we were kids, little babies, we've had a really good way of being disobedient. And the problem becomes, has that ever changed within the nature of man? No. We are rebellious creatures. You go and study how wars start, you be a student of history, and you see it's men lying to other men. That's how it is. Oh, resources. Oh, wealth. Oh, preservation of life, whatever it is. Well, it all comes down to the accumulation of power and the accumulation of wealth. All this kind of stuff leads us to where we are today. We would be insane to say that at the moment of a person's salvation, that nature disappears. It doesn't. Otherwise, there would be really one or two sentences in the New Testament. Those of you who are saved, you're going home soon. There'd be no instruction for them to avoid fornication because they would never have any problem with that. There'd be no instructions to the church in Galatia the region there to avoid backbiting, which is gossip, because they wouldn't have struggled with it if they had no sinful nature anymore. We all have this rotten, sinful nature. And the more that we post content and see what people are thinking about what the Bible says, I've come down to this conclusion. People don't know what it means to believe or what faith means as, as a noun. They don't understand it. And so I've gone to a lot of material and gathered up what I think is about three messages that will detail what this word faith is, what it is to have saving faith, and what is non-saving faith. We're going to look at all of that. Let me tell you something very clearly. People have made faith the subject of salvation. Jesus is the subject of salvation. We have, we have to be careful that we don't worship the way that we're saved, we need to worship Him, Jesus Christ. He's the one that is the Son of God. He's the one that shed His blood for the payment of our sins. He's the one that rose again three days later. He's the one that ascended before His disciples, and He is the one who's coming back. And there are many people who have faith, but it's not a faith which brings about justification from God. And that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where you're either in or you're out. And it's a very simple thing, but we have an adversary. He hides in college textbooks. He hides in mega churches. He hides in different doctrines of men. 
And he subtly twists a few things here and a few things there. And the next thing you know, you're not getting saved. You're trusting in yourself. Paul warned about this. He warned about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that through Satan's subtlety, you would be deceived from the gospel and go on to another Jesus. Now, I don't think he literally meant that there was another physical Jesus that they could believe in, but I think he's talking as a phrase. He's saying, believing on things about Jesus that were not true. And it's important that we understand the definition of this word so we can understand what it means to trust in Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people who struggle with what that means. And they have faith. They avoid sin. They go to church. They read their Bibles. They pray. They have humility. But they have zero assurance of their salvation. How can that be? How can that be? Someone has twisted their mind. I want to look here in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 21 through 23 because there's a point that I want to make with this statement that Jesus makes. He's warning against false teachers. He's going through all this stuff about Old Testament righteousness. He says you're going to know them by their fruits. And so many people rush to that and say, you're going to know them by what they do, by what they do. But as a matter of fact, it has to be something different because right here at the end of this statement, There's a clear instruction that these people had works that they thought were good enough to get in, but they don't get in. So what happened? What's the difference? Look at 21, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Now I want you to just... Hold your spot right here and go over to John chapter 6 in verse, I believe it's verse 39. John chapter 6 in verse 39. Oh, I love this so much. Folks, I know, I get excited and all this kind of stuff and talk about doing that backflip. But I get, I get so excited about this stuff because, you know, this is, this is simple and clear. We don't need a commentary to tell us what God really said here. This is Jesus speaking on the authority of God as God about what the will of the Father is. You just read in Matthew 7, 21 there, the only those that do His will, not those that say, Lord, Lord, as some sort of possession that Jesus is their Lord. Have you heard that before? you got to make Jesus the Lord of your life? You can do that all you want, but if, you're not trust, if you have not trusted in Him, you're not going in. You can tell the whole world that Jesus is your Lord. Judas was chosen before the foundation of the world to be an apostle, one of the twelve, and he did not get into heaven. Why? Something was not right. John chapter 6 and verse 39. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son, and what? believeth on him may have what and i will raise him up at the last day this is not the u.s government making you a promise nor is it your trusty next door neighbor promising something to you this is not a promise coming from your spouse or a family member this is from god himself and he says you believe You get everlasting life, and you have done my will. Go back to Matthew 7. 
Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. We know what that is. It is defined now. By the way, just as a reminder, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and I think John were all written from the different points of view about one life of Jesus. Okay? There are some things in Matthew that are not recorded in John. John is actually what people think to be the standalone thing. I put it together because it's a completed view. So there are things that are said in different gospel records that are not said in other gospel records. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't say it or that there's an error. This is filling in details. This is like when you take that thousand-piece puzzle and you start putting the border together. When you have the border and you got that picture to look at, you just got to start putting the pieces where they need to go, just one by one. That's how we need to look at the Gospels. So when Jesus says here, he's done the will, of the, the, uh, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven, he's given you that puzzle piece. What is the will? That you'd believe on him. And what was the number one thing that was happening in his day? They were not believing on him. They called him a liar. A more official term for that is they called him a blasphemous person. He was somebody who lied about who he was. Did, were they doing the will of the Father? No. They rejected him. And if they died in that state of rejection, no matter what they did in their life to show that they loved God, they rejected his son, they're not getting into heaven. Look at 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not... Now, there are, there are categories here. Prophesied in thy name, in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful, what? Works. So this is like different balloons, okay, that we're drawing together and tying them with one string. Prophesy, cast out devils, and many other wonderful... And here's the string that puts these all together works so here they are they're holding their balloon of their good works they're saying all these things look tons of balloons that i've done for you and they're essentially saying this is my proof that i am saved this is my proof that i get to walk into the kingdom my works i'm trusting in my works and then 23 is a statement that so many people they put it in their bow as an arrow and they launch it towards my forehead and they say this is talking about easy believism no, it's not. This is talking about any kind of workspace salvation. 23, and then will I profess unto them, I, and you need to see and understand this here, this word, never. Jesus cannot look at somebody who he once knew and say, I never knew you. I believe there's a purpose as to why he says this word. Because he's talking about somebody who never did the requirements to enter into the kingdom of heaven, which are detailed in verse 21. They never did. What are those details? Look in 21. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And John 6, 47 says, And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at that last day. There's a promise here. There's a guarantee that if you believe, you will be risen again at the last day. You'll have that new body. That's a promise from Jesus. He cannot tell a lie. 
So in Matthew 7, 23, when he says, and then I will profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And you can call that word whatever you want. It's sin. People like to say, oh, lawlessness. Great, that's sin. Whatever it is, define it as however you want. They did not do what was necessary to bring about eternal life. And we know what that is. Faith in Jesus Christ. I'll never get tired of answering people's questions about this because I see it. I see it in people when the light bulb goes off and they realize they're that one holding on to that, uh, th- those, those good work balloons. All different colors, all sorts of shapes and sizes. They are saying, these things are proof that you're my Lord and Savior. Those things are not honored by God. He doesn't honor works. He honors faith in His Son. And that's it. Once you believe, you receive. But you know how dangerous it is when you attack that word faith? Because if you can redefine this word, you can redefine Jesus. I've seen lightning strike on a golf course before. I don't want to stand next to the person that believes they can redefine Jesus' words. I may see that again. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't want to redefine what he says. I want him to speak clearly for himself. That's why there is profitability in studying the Greek, which we'll do today. Pray for me, okay? I literally, last night, was going through these again, and I thought to myself, I'm good. I woke up this morning, was refreshing myself, and I was like, boy, I'm glad I put the English uh, pronunciation in here. But that's why I want to do this series, because this word has been redefined by the Reformers. They have hitched requirements to this word, and it's changed its meaning. And if you can change the meaning of this word, then you can try and prove. Of course, you'd have to isolate different uh, phrases and twist more scripture, but you could prove that salvation demands works. You could prove that if you redefine this word. Words are being redefined every year. There were a couple thousand words that were redefined since 2020. You go look it up in the dictionary and you'll see that is not what that word means. Oh, but the dictionary says it. Then it must be done. (laughs) That's why it's important that we look at the original language, which we will today. So I'm going to ask if, Warren, you can cut these uh, overhead lights off here. And if we can shut the cove lights off, leave the overhead ones so you guys can still take notes in your Bible. We're going to be starting this series. It's three parts. And if you've been here before, you can probably guarantee on one more. (laughs) But we're going to try our best to get through what we need to cover before we start getting into saving faith and non-saving faith. I can't speak more highly about a book that I have read these things through. It's called Freely by His Grace. Um, I have a copy of it in my office. We have copies uh, in the college. It's a 600-page book. It's not, you know, summer reading, okay? It's academic in nature, but it's one of the, I've read every chapter of that book, and there is, there, it, it's just the Bible. And any kind of quotes and things speak about the truth from the Bible. It doesn't get wrapped up in this higher knowledge and educated learning that tries to make things more complex than they are. You'll see a quote towards the end of our study today about how there's just this desire and deception from scholars to make simple things complex. Because that's how you sell books, folks. That's how you sell radio programs. That's how you wow people when they're listening to you and they go, 
oh my goodness, I'm so dumb and you're so smart. We have to be careful. Jesus says you have to have faith like a little child. We need to be simple and clear so that even a, a kid can understand it. If I were to be transported into the back building right now as a Sunday school teacher, I should have the ability to teach what I'm going to teach to you at their level. Because they, can under, they need to understand it too. I have friends who have, you know, their kids are four and five years old, and they understand that their sin has been paid by Jesus Christ. You know what a Calvinist would say? Honestly, you could look at a five-year-old little girl who says she understands that Jesus died for her sin and she's trusting in him, and you'd have to look at her and say, you've got to prove it. You don't know if you're saved. You haven't lived a life. That's good enough. Who's going to say that to a five-year-old kid? That's why I think Jesus says it's better that you have a stone wrapped around your neck and you're tossed in the ocean. Jesus said that? Mm Mm-hmm. What was he saying that about? Surely it would be, you know, killing somebody, right? That would be the worthy crime. It's leading a child astray. That's why I do things like this, because when we lead people astray, God takes very high offense to that. And if you can get in the mind of a kid that they have to work their way for salvation, then when they're a teenager, it's probably going to be harder for them to change their mind. And that's what's happening with people today. They they live a life of sin, 20, 30 years, life of sin. They get convicted, but then the gospel that they hear is loaded with works. This word is redefined. They like to tack on an adjective, saving faith. Woo! What's that? You got to have works. They've lived a life full of misery and shame. So they're like, yes, I should do that. But then they're going to be the ones holding the balloons of good works. Lord, Lord, have we not? Lord, Lord, have I not quit my drinking? Lord, Lord, have I not loved my wife? Can a lost person do the same things a saved person does? And even better? Yeah, they're doing it today. There are people that are going to church that are more faithful than you are, who have trusted Christ, but they have not put their faith in Jesus Christ. So what's the distinguisher then? Because you can't say by their fruit, because the lost person can be deceptive. He can deceive himself. Must be what they say. Say about what? About Jesus. So let's get into this here. I think it'll be profitable. Why this series? Number one, that phrase that I hear all the time, did I have enough faith? It's heartbreaking, especially when I hear it from somebody who's in their 60s. They're weeping, they're crying, they feel like they don't have enough time left. And they say, I don't know if I had enough faith. I don't know if I did enough. I'm encouraged that I can go to them and say, this is what the Bible says. But I know too that they're going to suffer quite a bit. Because there's just a lot of things that they have to unlearn. They have, there's a lot of knots they have to undo. Number two, this is the critique that's lodged against me a lot, against Dr. Arnold too. By the way, Yankee's here with us today. Let's welcome Yankee. We've been praying for him. Very good. His wife, Betty, is here too. He's going to be speaking in both services next week. So he'll be speaking in the Sunday morning, and we just arranged before the service in the Sunday night because he has that much to go and cover. So I want to encourage you to be here. He'll be journeying, uh, uh, telling you about his journeys. But he and I get this same critique. So does Pastor Tom Kakusa and Dr. Jim Scudder and all these people that are just teaching the Bible. They say, you don't teach saving faith. Those are the people that bust into the comment section with a handful of balloons. Look at my works. This is proof that I'm saved. 
And you could literally tell those people the sky is blue and they will say, no, it's red, dummy. They will do everything that they can to destroy people's faith. They will twist themselves and then just untwist themselves by saying, no, I didn't. It's like kids on the playground. And people buy that stuff. So there's a comment, you don't teach saving faith, there's, a, there's an attack, they'll say that to you when you start sharing the gospel with people who think they have to have works to prove their faith. They'll look at you and say, well, you don't teach saving faith. You teach faith, but you don't teach saving faith. And it's like, what is that? And what, what will they tell you? Works, works, works. How do they get to that point? They've redefined that word. They've hitched some things on there. And the last thing is I want to give you a scriptural defense, which is my favorite thing to do. I've had many a discussion with people who disagree with me, and I'll sit on a verse, comfortable, I'm not worried about anything, and they're losing their mind. I mean, they're losing it. And I, I, I let them, you know. It's like if you've ever been in a fight, you've got to let the other person that's swinging, just let them keep swinging. You know, you just keep dodging you got about 15, 20 seconds until they start going. <laughs> and then you can, you know, defend yourself. They'll just collapse over in exhaustion. So I let these people, they go off. <laughs> and I'll say, you know, the Bible says, and then they're not even worked up anymore because they're all, they've, all their little turn of phrase, they've said it all, I've defended it all, and at the end of the day, you know what still stands unanswered by them? The Word of God. And it closes the mouth. This is what I hear the most, and it just, it irks me, but you know, I get it. Well, we'll just agree to disagree. No, I disagree with that. We're not going to agree to disagree. I'm standing on what God's Word says, and you have not given an answer. I'll agree to that. I don't, I don't like that. Well, I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree. For you, maybe. But I'm going to stand on God's word. Because you know what we would be saying when we agree to that kind of statement? Oh, this could mean many things. No, it doesn't. It has one contextual interpretation. We've got to be careful that we don't puppet these things, make them seem what they're not. All right, so here's what we're going to study first, part one, which is what is faith we're going to do a majority of what our lesson is right now on the screens. So take a look here. What is that word faith? This is generic faith, okay? So we're not talking about salvific faith. I'm not talking about what must I do to be saved, all that kind of stuff. That's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about this word faith. What does it mean? It is assurance or confidence in some stated or implied truth. And it usually comes with propositions, right? It wouldn't make sense if I were to say, without any context, I believe Jim, and you may say, naturally, what do you believe about Jim, right? Because if I'm going out there and saying, I believe Jim, <coughs> people are going to go, what? Who? What do you believe Jim will do? Okay. And the most common thing I hear about this definition, which is, this is just a compilation of what makes sense from the practice of this word, is people say, well, you're teaching intellectual salvation only. How else do you believe something? I want you to think about this for a moment. How else do you believe something? We have an intellect. We can receive knowledge. 
We can compare it to other stated facts and make a decision. You know this. If you know where this church is, right? You're, going, you're, at, you're at your home and you know where this church is. You have faith. There is assurance or confidence in some stated or implied truth that this church is here. This sounds so basic, but folks, this is how simple it is, what this word faith is. So you get in your car, and you drive here, and when you get to 4811 George Road, you have assurance or confidence in the stated or implied truth, which is the address, that when you pull in here, this church will be here. Now, if you pulled in here, and there's a brand new Chick-fil-A, okay, you may go, one of two things is true. One, I made a mistake. I had assurance or confidence in a stated or implied truth that was actually false, and I'm at the wrong place. Or, I had faith that the church was here, but something changed. Right? Well, it's only one or two things. Doesn't change the faith that you had. Doesn't change it. But you've got to find out if what you're believing is what? Truth. That's the difference. But this word is simple. Children do this all the time. They exercise faith. You exercise faith. It's a sad day when you exercise faith in clothing that used to fit, and it doesn't fit anymore. It's no longer an implied truth. And this is what is great, folks. When we're talking about faith, this is why faith in blank is so important. I say I have faith I believe Jim. I have faith in Jim. I better be sure that what Jim says he's going to do, he will do. So when you believe in Jesus, you're saying, I have assurance or confidence in a stated or implied truth. That's why I don't teach a crossless gospel. I can't just mosey up to somebody at Terry's over here and say, believe in Jesus. And they say, who's that? And I say, believe. And they go, okay. What are they believing about Jesus? Is it Jesus? Somebody who comes and comes to church, maybe? Who are we talking about? Oh, the one who claimed to be the Son of God. Oh, that's interesting. We're filling things out. There are some who like to attack, well, you have seven steps to the gospel with the wallet illustration. No. I want people to know that when they exercise faith, they can have assurance or confidence in some implied truth. What's the implied truth of the wallet illustration? That God sent his son to die on the cross and pay for your sins. He rose again three days later. That's the implied truth. Jesus verified that by his resurrection. And you're going to see the woman at the well. We'll get to that in a moment. I've got to stop right there because we we could go into that prematurely. But faith, generic. Assurance or confidence in some stated or implied truth. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Boy, I love teaching like this. This is my favorite thing to do. It's just, it gives a lot of assurance. The Word of God speaks so clearly for itself. Now, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, it uses this phrase that you see on the screen here. It says substance. Now, I know we're talking about generic faith, but Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 actually uses this word faith and defines it in a sense that is worldwide generic, whether it's about salvation or it's uh, uh, you know, things that are not to do with soteriology. 
Here's what it says. It's on page 1301. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This word substance is important because it's tied directly to what this word faith means. Hypostasis. There you go. Nailed it. Right, Bob? Please change my grade. Ah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right, that's the Greek word here, and it means this, confidence or assurance. So we can say here, now faith is the confidence or faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Then the entire chapter demonstrates, excuse me, highlights people's demonstrated assurance or confidence in God. Noah, well, let's look at it. Look at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice. Stop. The faith was demonstrated in his actions, but he had confidence or assurance in God that the sacrifice he was offering was accurate. How, was, was there an inaccurate sacrifice that was offered? Yeah, and it was probably a vegan's delight. <clears throat> the, the freshness of the garden, all the work of his hand, think of a cornucopia. Boom, look at this. Woo, look at this. There's no blood that's been shed. Abel, he had his confidence and assurance in what God said was an accepted sacrifice. Now, the person who wants to redefine faith will say, see, he had real faith because he did something. Those two are separate. They're separate. The faith that he had led to his obedience. Cain, we don't know what Cain believed, but he had the information and he chose to do something opposite. Did, did Cain know that murder was wrong? Yeah, or else he wouldn't have tried to hide Abel. He knew what was wrong. Substance equals confidence or assurance. And that's how we can get to that basic, generic understanding of the word. Look here in verse 7 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not, yet, not seen as yet. By the way, if you just read that at a plain reading, what God was describing he would do to the earth was brand new to Noah. The man trusted God, and he acted upon it. Being warned of God of things not yet, not as seen, excuse me, not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by what? Confidence or assurance. That's what that means. Noah is not, look up here for a moment. Noah is not in heaven today because he built an ark. Noah is not in heaven today because he was able to save his family. Noah is in heaven today because he placed his trust, confidence, and assurance in what God said. Period. Do we have an example of somebody who is in heaven but disobeyed what God said to do? May I introduce you to the patriarch of the Jewish faith? His name is Moses. Moses struck the rock the first time when Israel needed life-giving water. It was bitter. He struck the rock. They're going around. 
in the wilderness. Years later, water's out. It's bitter again. Moses is very clearly instructed, do not strike the rock again. Speak to it. Because God is setting an illustration here that he's going to use. And what did Moses do? Yes, Lord. Then he started getting complaints. He started getting emails (laughs) and phone calls. You know, at the church dinners, there was that one table over there. You know, I'm being funny, but, you know, sadly, all the murmuring complaining that was happening led him to disobey God. And what did he do? He struck the rock again. He paid the highest price that he could pay. He died without getting into the promised land. So he must be in hell. According to Calvinist doctrine, he did not persevere until the end. But how is Moses saved? By faith. He trusted God. Abraham, same way. You see the difference there? You can be saved and disobedient, but you will suffer loss. People don't like that, but you know what? It's the truth. There are many people who are believers. They live a wicked, carnal life, and they end up dying early. And they will stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, and they will have their works, which were profitless, burned up. And there must be something significant about that. Otherwise, we wouldn't be warned about this terror of the Lord. Now, I'm not saying the judgment seat of Christ will be a whipping stand, but I think very plainly, we will all have to give an account and will feel shame for what we could have done. That's why I despise it when people say, you teach that you can live as you please and go to heaven. No, we don't. No, we don't. I've never stood up here and said, praise God, do what you want. I say, you have that choice, and if you make that choice, you need to be educated on the consequences. But that doesn't change what God validated in the person's faith. It doesn't change it. It can't change it. And if you don't like it, you need to educate yourself on what the Scripture says, not try to redefine words so it fits a theology. And that's what you're going to see next, well, not next week, the week after. You're going to see how the Reformers just, they're pretzel makers, man. They make things appear out of nowhere. Assurance or confidence in some stated or implied truth. Faith as a noun here, pistis is the Greek word. Believe as the verb, which is pistuo. Nailed it. Better than I did in my office a few, about an hour ago. But we can see here, there's a noun version of it, there's a verb version of it, and we should see Is it used every single time? Is this word, faith and believe, used in context of salvation? No, it's not. Not every time. You're going to see that. Let's go to Luke chapter 1 and verse 20. Those of you who might be familiar with Luke chapter 1, we have the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. Let's start in verse uh, 13, and then we'll get to 20 there. 
But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife, Elizabeth, shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers and the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, look up here. That is the stated, implied truth. We have two people in this story. We have the angel, and then we have Zacharias. The angel says, this is happening. Your wife's going to have a son, You're going to name him John. He's going to take vows. He's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. He will bring about joy to those who want to change their mind about the Messiah. Change their mind, preparing the way. That's the truth, okay? Zacharias has a choice now. He can either believe or not believe. When I walk around the big box stores and somebody comes up to me and says, oh, hey, who's your phone provider? Right? And I say, AT&T. Well, at the time it was. It's a Verizon guy, you know. Oh, you could save a bunch of money. We could switch today. Get you a new iPhone 53 Pro Max Flip Z Plus. Get it right now. Save a bunch of money. Be good. I have a choice to make. He's stated something, and I can either believe it or not believe it. And I've been with phone companies long enough to not believe that. Okay, so I say, no, thank you. Can I give you something? Right? Give him a gospel track. The angel has given information for Zacharias to make a decision about. What is his choice? 18. Look at 18. And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb. Okay, Zacharias didn't say anything else. He asked some questions, but it showed he doesn't believe what the angel is saying. How's that going to happen? We're old. It's not the first time someone has said that, by the way. Sarah said it in her own unique way. She went, <laughs> you know. That went well for her. Thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not. Does that mean that Zacharias is in hell? No, because what's the context here? Zacharias did not believe the testimony of Gabriel. So there were consequences. Look in Luke chapter 8 and verse 25. Back up to 22. Some page 1084. Now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples and he said unto them, let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. 
And there came down a storm of wind on the lake, and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. Now, this doesn't mean that they were going to go and, you know, answer some questions. I'll take this for 800. They were in peril. When you're in a boat and the boat is filling with water, that's not a good thing. They're fearful. They're, they're fearful for their lives. 24, and they came to him, that's they're coming to Jesus, and awoke him saying, Master, Master, we perish, we're dying. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased and there was a calm. And he said unto them, where is your what, what do we know that word means? Where is your confidence or assurance? What? That's not fair. Why would Jesus do that to them? What did he say in verse 22? Let us go over into the other side of the lake. There's no fine print here. He's not saying, we're going to die before we get there. <laughs> Boy, these guys, I'm going to pull the rug out. That's the kind of Jesus that people teach today. That he says, oh, you can believe and receive everlasting life, but don't tell them they've got to keep good works. And I got them. So they didn't believe in what Jesus said he was going to do. Does that mean all the apostles are in hell now? No, they just didn't believe enough. Well, if they really believed into eternal life, they would have never doubted him. I love when people say that because I just want to go, and how about you? How about you? How are you doing? Do you meet the standards that you set for everybody else? Yeah, I can't do that though because that's inflammatory. But sometimes I have. I don't do it publicly, you know. 25, though. And he said unto them, Where is your faith? And they, being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and water, and they obey him. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 5. We're looking at different cases here where we're not talking about faith or believe in a salvific sense, but we're demonstrating a very clear understanding of the generic use of the word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 5. This is on page 1213. We'll start in verse number 1. Well, by the way, this is one of my... This is a very... As a pastor, as a teacher who travels different places from time to time, I take this to heart. Paul had a lot of knowledge, folks. A lot of knowledge. But he put all that aside for, for, for one thing, that people would see Jesus. And I think there's a lot of traveling pastors and teachers that need to take after a man like Dr. Arnold and just preach Jesus, not all this other stuff. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What he was going to demonstrate to them was that they could have confidence and assurance, not in the wisdom of man, which was prevalent even in their day, but instead in the power of God. Now that can lead to the teaching and preaching of Jesus Christ, but they had a choice to make. Believe in the power of God, in which he would tell them was through Jesus Christ, or Believe in the wisdom of man. Whoops, wrong button. Look in verse 18 of chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 18. <clears throat> Paul's getting ready to lay it on him. 
out there in the totally obedient Corinth church. 1 Corinthians 11.18, he says to him, look at verse 17, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear, here's the stated or implied truth, that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. He believes it to some degree. That's what the word believe means there. No works tied in. No, oh, if Paul really believed in X, Y, and Z. We have to read that into the text. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. I know we're moving quickly. Hang in there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. Whoops. Wrong chapter, I'm in. Start there in verse 5. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given us unto us the earnest of the Holy Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by what? Confidence or assurance. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are trusting daily in the confidence and assurance of God's. What, what specifically? That when we are gone, we're with Him. Folks, we're going to live out that confidence or assurance on Wednesday. When we come together here and we remember Sandy, we have confidence and assurance that what God said about her is that she's with the Lord now. That is about her salvation, but that's not how she got saved. We have confidence in the power of God. My mother died in 1998. I'm going to see her again. Where is my confidence and assurance? In the promises of God. She believed she's going to be raised up again on that last day. I believe that. I believe that. Look up here at the screen. This is a great quote from Zane Hodges. Surely it is one of the conceits of modern theology to suppose that we can define away simple terms like belief and unbelief and replace their obvious meanings with complicated elaborations. And to that I say, amen. Boy, people love to do this. They tinker and tinker and tinker and and, and they change simple words to make them complex. And then they put on their academic robes and their funny little hats and they say, Look at us, so accomplished. You need to be like us. No, I'm going to be called a fool by the standards of the world because I know I'm a child of God. Now I want you to see two uses of this word believe where it is specific about what they are believing and what it produced. So go to John chapter 4 and verse 21. This is another one of those passages that it just gets you all that you need. You know, you watch these football games and stuff and they're all in the huddle and they're ooh, ooh, they're going around you know they're like and someone's talking something we're gonna go out there and all these guys are like yeah we're gonna do it yeah and then they break out of that huddle and they're ready to mow somebody down they've got all this confidence and assurance that's what this passage does for me it just it invigorates the truth of god's word we can see what this woman at the well believed and what what it led her to do it's awesome Verse 21. Yeah, John chapter 4 and verse 21. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, now look at, look, look at, don't look up here, but look in your Bibles. Believe me. Now, 
He's going to go on for four more verses here talking about some specific things for her time that are relevant for her and all these different things, and we can make observations upon it. But he says, believe me. What does that mean? That means believe in what I say. Now, let's go on. The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you worship, you know not what. We know that uh, what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. They knew that the salvation of the world was going to come through the nation of Israel. But the hour cometh, 23, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. So when he says, believe me, and now he says, spirit and in truth, he says this in 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman saith unto him, she has, if you study the, rest, the, the verses before this, this is the one question that she asks that is showing her what she's about to believe about Jesus. Look what it says. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. Again, that's his title. When he has come, he will tell us all things. 26. Jesus saith unto her, I Jesus, that speak unto thee, woman, am he. Am he what? He's the Messiah. I know I'm speaking loudly. I'm not upset. I'm confident here. It's so very clear. So when he said in verse 21, believe me, look what she does. 27. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Why? She's a Samaritan. No, 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 no. Jesus, come on. I can't imagine looking at Jesus and saying, you know, do something better. Obviously, they thought in their minds that. Yet no man said, what seeketh thou? Or why talkest with her? No one said it because they knew, like, this guy is rebuking weather. I'm just going to let him do what he needs to do. Now I want you to see something important here in verse 28. The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the man, to the men in the city, by the way, she had a ton of husbands before this. So they probably knew who she was. I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory way at all. They knew this woman. They knew what she had come from. And now she tells him this. Come see a man which told me all things I, ever I did. Is not this the Christ? This is evidence of what she believed. But what saved her? The going into the city and declaring what she believed? No, she believed right there. Got it. Boom. Look in John 1, 11 through 12. Just a few pages over there to the left. We're going through this great dissertation here. We could start in verse 1, but we don't have time. We get to verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. This was not talking about John the Baptist, who was also rejected. This is talking about Jesus Christ. He came unto his own, and his own received. That word, when we understand its meaning, means welcome. Welcomed in. Accepted. His own received him not. But, now here's the contrary. And we're, we're talking all here about intellect about what a person can do and make decisions about internally. 
He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he, gave he power to become the sons of God. Period, right? There's nothing else after that? No, there is. And get ready. By the way, this is that swing that's coming right in the middle of the zone. And just it, it just smashes any kind of doubt about what this word must mean. Take a look, folks. Even to them that believe on what? His name. So what does it mean to believe on his name? The things about him, the stated or implied truths about him. We're going to close in this one. John 11. John 11. This is not in my notes, so give me a second here. Uh, 24 through 26. Well, two through 27. So we just saw in John 1, 11 through 12, we saw there how a person, there was a group of people that rejected him, and those who would believe on his name, they are given something, the title of their child of God. That we, we would have to go through the scripture and we'd have to make a case that that positional declaration or that welcoming into the family somehow changes based on our obedience or disobedience. And we would have to say that faith is tied to a person's works. But I'm going to make the case throughout this series, as I think we've done sufficiently just this morning, that that word simply means to have assurance or confidence in a stated or implied truth. So the only way that a person who's believed in Jesus Christ ends up going to hell is because Jesus lied. Perish the thought. That's what gives me greater confidence. Because I know he can't lie. He didn't lie. He came back from the dead. Forty and six years did it take for this temple to be built. And you're going to reconstruct it in three days? But they didn't know he was talking about his body. And there's so many other promises. So when Jesus says that I'm going to have the Holy Spirit and he's going to lead, guide, and direct me into all truth, I can put my assurance and confidence in him that that is true. Just like I believed on him for everlasting life, I believe that I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit. When he says I'm going to suffer persecutions, I believe that. Now I have to make a choice as to whether I will obey. But that belief is honored by God with eternal life because it's applying the blood of Jesus Christ. Look in John chapter 11 and verses 24 through 27. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Where are we at here? We're talking about Lazarus. He's dead. The phrase is, he's been in there four days. He stinketh. You're going to bring him back? You know, I think this is so interesting what Jesus says here to Martha. It gives you great insight as to what he's trying to get at. Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection. She knows Lazarus is, is going to come back at the last day. Jesus is saying, I am that resurrection and the life. He that what? Believeth in me. There's nothing here about and goes to church and dies to self as John Piper would, would teach. Pursuing holiness and killing sin. Jesus doesn't say that here. Because we don't need a, a, a better version of ourselves, We need something brand new, folks. And that's what is given when you believe. Look at what it says. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And he looks at Martha and he asks a question so very clearly. He says, believest 
thou this. What is this? That he's the resurrection. That he's that promised Messiah. She believes that. She receives everlasting life. Praise God. That's how simple it is. But it's not that simple. It's not that simple on, on Christian radio. Nor is it that simple on websites. You can close your Bible. I've come to the conclusion that the website Desiring God really does desire God. <laughs> because a lot of the things that they write on there, uh, they're desiring to know truth, but it's not accurate. I can't tell you how many times people will send me articles. They'll send me articles, right? Well, look at this. Look at what he says about this. And I'll just send them a, a Bible verse? Whoa. You've got to give me more detail than that. What more detail do you need? People say, you overused John 5.24. Good. Good. We can turn the lights back on. You know why that's good? Because those are Jesus' words. We don't need a website to verify. There's no fact-checking him. All right? You want to know if what he said was true? Is the tomb empty? Yes, it is. <laughs> so we can know that what he said is true. So next week, Dr. Arnold will be here for both services. And I, I believe you will be blessed by that. It's great to follow his newsletters as he goes around and just encourages people. People trust Christ. And then he gets a call. Hey, what about this place? You know, hundreds of miles away. They get in that RV, which is here by the grace of God. He'll tell you about that. <laughs> but he doesn't change his message. He doesn't go into a free will Baptist church and say, oh, I got to teach you can lose your salvation because that's what they believe here. I don't want to offend anybody. I would crave for that opportunity just to see him go into a church where they believe you can lose your salvation and then, and then teach using the Bible that you can't. Love to see those feathers rustled. But you know, a lot of people, they'll go to places like that, they'll hear him teach and they'll come out saying, I don't believe what God's word says. I need to make a change. And what is that change? They need to change what they think. Where their confidence and assurance is placed. I heard a definition by Zane Hodges that said, faith is just taking God at his word. It's that simple. Now, you can take me at my word, but folks, I can fail you. I can plan to be here tonight and I die. And there's, I have no control over that. But God, he can't lie. He cannot deceive you, nor will he. So when you believe what the Bible says, you can know that it's true. Look up here. I want to share with you how you can know for sure that you're going to heaven when you die. That's what this is all about. Because when we attack this word, it makes this more difficult. This hand is going to represent me, you, and everybody in the entire world. And my wallet here, it's going to represent all of our sin. Now this, it separates us from God. We're all sinners. We miss the mark. I hear so many people say, you know, I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do this. And it's like, have you read James where he says when you don't do the things you should? And all of a sudden it's like, where did they go? <laughs> They're not saying anything anymore because they know there are things they should do that they do not do. And that's called the sins of omission. Those equally are condemning. God, he loves us very much, but he hates sin. And this sin, it separates us from him. We cannot get to heaven in this condition. As a matter of fact, this sin requires a payment. And if we were to die without a payment applied for our sin, 
we spend an eternity in a literal fire-burning hell separated from Him. I've heard theologians say before and commentators say before, they don't know what's worse. The fact that you're eternally in anguish or that there is no way that you can get back to God in hell. I can't imagine. I really can't. It motivates me greatly. I want people to avoid that. How do we avoid it, though? Well, world religion will say you've got to go to church, you've got to read your Bible, pray, study, give money, you know, all those things, that will save you. God, he'll balance things out. You've got more good than bad, you're in. If there's more bad than good, I'm sorry. You could have done more, you're going to go to hell. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Somebody has to die for this sin. It's not paid for by good works. Somebody's got to die for it. This hand represents Jesus Christ, just for the sake of the illustration. The only begotten Son of God. And what He did for you and for me and for even for those who don't believe, He went to the cross of Calvary. He knew no sin. He became that sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's called the ministry of reconciliation. It's removing that which was in the way. Here's God and all the perfection. Here's us with our sin. It's in the way. Jesus died on the cross. He took that sin out of the way. And now there's nothing withholding. So how does a person get saved? They place their confidence and assurance in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the moment that they do, they're sealed. They're justified. They're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. They're given the, chi- they're, they're given the title, child of God. In the courtroom of God, they, find they are found innocent. They are justified immediately. And they can know that they have eternal life. How, how, how? You put your trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. But what if I go and sin? Well, you're disobedient. Well, and what if it's a really bad sin? Then you're really disobedient. Is that going to send me to hell? Well, let me ask you a question. Is what you did a sin? Yes. Did Jesus die for sin? Yes, but this is after I believe. Well, did He die for all your sin or did He die for some? He died for all of them. And so what if that offends people? That's how God chose to do it, amen? Amen. And I thank God that He did. That makes a sinner like me confident that one day, regardless of how I finish this race, one day I will be with the Lord. Why? Because I believe in His Son. He died on the cross for my sin. And you can do so too. Right where you're sitting. Usually I ask for heads to be bowed and eyes to be closed, but you can believe right now. You can put your confidence, your assurance in the finished work of Jesus Christ that He paid for your sins on the cross. If you did that right now, the Bible says you're saved. Didn't feel any different, Pastor. It's not about feelings. Feelings are misleading. Lot had some feelings. Didn't turn out well. Feelings are not what save us. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that saves us. So I implore you right where you're sitting to put your trust in Him. You can have assurance, not in me, but in God's word, that you're passed from death unto life, you'll never be brought into condemnation again. That's from Jesus himself. You want the receipt? John 5, 24. Take a look at it. Read the whole chapter. It's really good. Now I'd like to pray for you. Would you uh, bow your heads and close your eyes, please? Nobody looking around. If you trusted in Christ this morning, and that made sense to you, I I would like to pray for you. Would you simply raise your hand and let me know? Raising your hand doesn't save you, it just lets me know. Praise God. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. 
Folks, for you that are here today, somebody just trusted Christ as their Savior. We should have great rejoicing, and I pray that you are rejoicing. Heads are bowed and eyes are still closed. Maybe you have friends or family members that struggle with this kind of word twisting that's happening in Christianity today. They don't know what to believe. Would you pray that God would use you in a great way to help them come to clarity? Many people need it, folks. Many people need it. And would you pray for the one that trusted Christ today? They're a part of our family now because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Would you pray for their encouragement, for a hedge of protection, for their growth? But we rejoice in knowing they will be with the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that we have in your word. Above all, we praise your son, whose name is Jesus. In his name we pray these things.